Welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project. This is the place for stories that matter. If you're a regular listener, you know that I'm interested in the sounds of the natural world, and I've interviewed quite a few sound recordists on this program. Well, today you're going to meet a guy who is more than just a hobbyist. He works all over the world for big movie studios. In fact, when we recorded this interview, he had just returned from a shoot in the Sahara Desert in Algeria for a big Hollywood production that I'm not allowed to talk about. He also does sound design for the video game industry, which is a lot more complicated than you may think, as you'll hear a bit later. My guest is George Vlad. What you're hearing in the background is a track he recorded in Madagascar. I learned about George's work a few years ago when I ran across a photograph of him standing on the lip of a volcano with a boom pole extended over the rim. What you just heard is the splash and the flow of the lava below. This is clearly a guy who has no problem going to great lengths to get what he sets out to record. George's work is a pleasure to listen to. Not only is it beautifully recorded, but it can be quite exotic, obviously. He has recorded soundscapes all over the world. The Amazon Basin, Borneo, the Arabian Desert, the rainforests of West Africa, Madagascar, and all over Europe, including his native Romania. You can learn more about George and his work and listen to some great tutorials at mindful-audio.com or at his YouTube site. We'll give you those locations a bit later as well. But first, let's meet George. I caught up with him for this interview at his home in London. So I'm George Vlad. I work as a sound designer, sound recordist, composer, audio director. I was born and grew up in Romania and I had quite a feral childhood. You know, back then, there was not so much supervision from adults. I grew up with my grandparents, and they were busy working in the field on the farm. I was always around. I was free to go out and roam and explore. You know, when I was five, for example, I would go out with my friends, and we'd just go up in the hills and the forest. But for me, that was a, was a huge learning experience. Without being aware, I was always listening. I was always interested in sound. I was mostly focused on the auditory experience. You know, I, when I think about my childhood, I can remember a lot of different sounds which later I started to identify, you know, like bird song and, and animal sounds, things like that. And that made me realize, you know, sound is cool. I'm, I'm excited. I like listening to sounds. I like making sounds. I like employing them to tell a story. Growing up in the countryside, anything can be a toy, right? You know, we didn't have a lot of like toys you buy from, from shops. But an uncle of mine, he would build little musical instruments out of uh, twigs and bits of corn stalks and just random things, the most random of things. And I, that was fascinating for me. I was always interested in all. I was always waiting for him to come back from, from work and to teach me something new. But George didn't stay in rural Romania. I moved back to the city when I was seven or eight. You know, I went to school. I got a good education. I was a DJ for a while in my teens. I was becoming very disappointed with the music I could find to, to play for my audience. So I, I think it was about 15 or 16 when I realized I could produce my own music. 
That realization was a turning point for him because this was really the moment when his career in sound became tangible. He was discovering his own capabilities. I think I was about 25 when I realized I have these skills. You know, I've, I've been learning. I've been teaching myself how to produce music. And this, is, this sounds like a better job than construction site work. So I decided, you know, I'm not going to do any more of these low-skill jobs. I'm going to try and focus and get some paid jobs that, that involve me creating sounds and, and editing sounds. And that was the start of my, my, my career in sound. This was 2010. You know, ever since then, I've been just slowly progressing and doing more and more cool things. Initially, I was editing podcasts and audiobooks, and then I started to do some sound design. Then I found the App Store, and I approached a bunch of people. They had very cool-looking games, but the sound was very poor on them. So I, I did a few mock-ups, you know, showed them what I could do. Some of them ignored, ignored me. Some of them got, got back to me. You know, I worked on a few of them. And very, very slowly, it snowballed. And I realized I, I really liked that. I, I liked working in this industry. Before we continue with George, I want to interrupt him for just a second. He mentioned a term that you may not be familiar with, sound design. So I asked him to explain what it means. It's using sound to paint a picture, to tell a story, right? If you're working on a, on a film, you know, I'm not sure how many people know, but most things that you hear in a film, they're not recorded on set, right? Because there's too much happening. It's, there's too much noise. Everyone is talking. There's so many devices, so many fans everywhere. So you have to recreate that in post. That's true. The audio recorded on set during the filming of a movie or a TV show is almost always replaced afterward during the process called post-production. It's done typically using two techniques. One of them is called automatic dialogue replacement. You've probably seen the credit for the ADR technician in movie credits. Basically what happens is that they bring the actor into a studio and they play segments of the film on a screen that he or she is in. And then the actor says their lines in sync with their character on screen for each chunk of the video into a high-quality recorder, and that's the sound that gets used in the final production. If you look closely, now be careful because you can't unsee what I'm about to tell you, you'll notice that on television or even in movies, it's pretty common for the mouth movement of the actor and the audio that you hear to not quite be in sync. That's the ADR doing its thing. The second technique isn't about voices, it's about all the other sounds that need to be in a piece of film for it to sound right. For example, if an actor is walking in the rain with an umbrella, you better hear raindrops hitting the umbrella or it's just going to sound weird. The same is true for someone walking in tall grass or punching somebody in the face or dropping a plate. All of those sounds, and I mean pretty much all of them, are replaced using a technique called Foley. I covered it in episode 176. Anyway, back to George. For video games, there's no set. You know, you have to, to create everything from scratch. So when you think about the job of a sound designer, you think about telling the story that's happening on screen or you know, on your phone or wherever you're playing the game or watching the, the production. But you have to paint that with sound. So you have to build the ambiences, you have to build the, the creature sounds, you know, the vehicle sounds and the magic and all that, all that stuff that's happening on screen. And then think, think about the voices as well. Sometimes you have to design those voices. Sometimes you have to process them. You either use existing sounds, like from a sound bank or stuff that you record yourself, or you use synthesizers or other ways to generate the sound and then process it. You have like a huge amount of tools at your disposal and you just need to tell a story. It's as simple as that, but obviously, you know, it's deceptively simple because then as, as you go 
uh, deeper into it, you find that there's lots of different approaches, lots of different tools. Uh, and it, yeah, it's one of my my chosen careers. You know, I, I really loved it from, from the moment I realized that was a thing. And I still do it every day and I love it. As George gained experience and developed his sound editing and composition skills, he found himself pulled into the world of video games. Video games were a totally different world. You know, you'd come up with an idea, put together a video game. You know, it might be like three, four, ten people involved. But then as soon as you ca- you have it, you put it up on the on the App Store or on the on Steam or wherever, you know, whatever marketplace. And then you start getting money in. So after I've, I'd done this for a few years, I realized I, I was missing big pieces of, of, of knowledge. And I went to study in Edinburgh. I moved to Edinburgh with my then partner. And I got my degree in sound design. In the process, I burnt out really badly because I was working about five days a week for my clients to, you know, to pay the bills and everything. And then I was doing two days a week for my university projects. And I probably worked for three months without stopping, you know, no weekends, no holidays. I was sometimes doing 100 hours a week. But when you've recently started to work in your dream career, which that was for me, I felt like I had to kind of overdo it, you know, to, to be as good as I could be, you know, to give my best and to to show that I appreciate having these opportunities. So that's when I burnt out. So I took a month off. I flew back to Romania, rented a car and went into the mountains, you know, like a, <laughs> one of those people who were fed up with, with uh, society. So I just drove around the mountains, went hiking every day, did some photography. And then I realized I could do sound recording. You know, I, I was always listening, you know, I, I couldn't turn off my, my uh, listening skills. So I had some microphones with me, you know, I, I I set up some drop rigs, you know, I was recording some soft wind, some, I got some recordings of snow falling, very gentle, very quiet recordings. And that helped me anchor myself in the present, you know, instead of having my mind always, you know, kind of thinking about work, you know, and, and always going, you know, even when I was sleeping, I was always thinking about something. And when I got back, I promised myself that I would never do the hundred hour weeks anymore, but also that I would try to be more mindful of how I'm feeling and check in with myself every now and then, not overdo it, you know, to try and and balance this time I spent in the studio with time spent outside, not necessarily focusing on work, not in front of a screen, which seems to be working. You know, 10 years later, I feel like I'm much better than I, you know, in in a much better place than I was uh, 10 years ago. And that much better place means that while George still works extensively in sound design, he also now leads sound expeditions all over the world. Somehow going back to my childhood, my feral childhood, I kind of recreate this feeling of exploring. You know, when I go to Europe, for example, you know, I like to explore slightly different soundscapes than what I when I was used to. But then I also went to Africa, which is quite different. You know, it's very different. There's mostly different species to, to the ones I was used to. And then something like Southeast Asia, where everything is crazy and different and sounds amazing. And then South America and other places like that. As I was doing these things, I was collecting a lot of sound recordings and, and I had people ask me, you know, would you license some birdsong recordings to us? Would you do this for us? Would you be able to do go record something for us? So that snowballed as well. And now I'm doing about maybe 30 to 40 percent of my time is going out and recording. And then about 60 to 70 is uh, being in the studio, working on video games, editing my recordings, working on licensing deals. And as I told you earlier, I was recently in the Sahara recording for this uh, Hollywood film, which I can't talk about, but it's, I'm very excited about it. It's going to come out uh, in a few months. And yeah, this is, uh, this is me, I guess. But I'm happy where I am. I, I'm one of those people who, tomorrow's Monday. I'm so excited. And everyone's like, 
what's wrong with this guy? Why, why is he excited about uh, starting the work week? So, video games, sound design, cinema sound, and now the sounds of the natural world. With all that going on, with so much focus on sound in his life, I asked George why, in his opinion, it's important for us, meaning humans, to pay attention to the wild soundscapes that surround us, but that we're often completely oblivious to. I think there are two main aspects here. I think the, the first one is a, is a quite a, a tragic one. You know, it's it's known as shifting baseline. When you think about life, maybe a hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, or even even further back, things have a certain baseline. You know, soundscapes. There, there's a number of species. There's a number of individuals wherever you would be, and that seems to be changing. And it is not changing for the better. You know, things are getting worse. If you speak to someone, you know, maybe who's 80 or 90, you know, they're going to tell you, you know, in my day, there used to be a lot of different species in this area. You know, talking about my own experience back in Romania, my grandfather, you would tell me he could hear wolves at night, you know, from the, the, the house I grew up in. You know, they were they were in the forest, which was maybe a few miles away from where we lived. But that was not the case because of, of habitat fragmentation. So for that reason, they're not present in the soundscape anymore. You know, even thinking about birds, you know, some birds rely on certain, for example, some owls, they need big trees to to, to nest in, like huge owls, the, the Eurasian eagle owl, it needs a really big cavity in a tree so that, that they can nest in. As soon as you do what's called a selective logging and you cut down the oldest trees, which some people say is, is, is better than cutting down everything, maybe it means that the, the soundscape is different. It has changed. It has degraded over the years. So if we don't document it, we don't know, you know, maybe 20 years from now, it's going to sound even more shallow and, and poor and, and thin. And if we can't compare it to anything, people who, who grow up in, in 20 years from now, they're going to think that's the baseline. That's the that's what is normal. That's what things should be like. It's very depressing when you think about it, you know, where I'm hoping that I can also raise awareness about these issues with my sound recordings. And I'm getting some of this feedback on my YouTube channel. You know, there's people who've never been to a rainforest, but they listen to my recordings and they say, look, this needs to be protected. They're aware of conservation issues happening in Borneo, for example, where maybe 70% of the original rainforest has been cut down for oil palm plantations and things like that. I don't know how much impact we have. I still think direct, directly supporting these initiatives, you know, the conservation initiatives is the best way to do it. But raising awareness can go, you know, can go a fair bit. I think as I'm building this platform, you know, I'm, I'm finding out about ways to to make conservation more effective and to help people on the ground. I like to work with people when I travel, you know, and to see what their work is like and to see if they, they really deserve to be supported. You know, some of these initiatives are just greenwashing. So, you know, I like to stay away from those. Some of the stuff I do on location is just working with these, uh, these initiatives and seeing the fruits of their labor, seeing the results of their work which I can document, again, with video and photo and, and sound recording. So this is an, is an added aspect, is, is the second aspect in what I was, uh, was mentioning earlier. It's a very important job. You know, people think it might be a bit um, pretentious. You know, you do just go travel somewhere. It all looks very glamorous. You go somewhere, put up some microphones, you come back, and then you think you've done some crazy things. But not a lot of people have the, the knowledge and experience to do it well. Of course, you can go out in your back garden, you know, in the in the UK or in the US and you get some sound recordings, you know, better or worse, whatever, you know, you can keep trying. But when you put together an expedition to Gabon, for example, or to, to the Congo Basin Rainforest, 
there's so many things that can go wrong. You know, I can make a huge list of those. So when you go and do that and, and record those things, it's not just about the glamour of travel or, you know, being there to explore, taste the local cuisine or, or whatever. That's a really big responsibility, you know. And obviously, you don't want to to waste all of these resources, you know, spending so much money and flying, you know, and doing all these things that are detrimental to the to the environment and then come back with nothing. So it's quite a lot of pressure as well. But I feel like we're doing a, a very important job, you know, me and, and the other people who are, who are doing this. So I asked George what a typical day is like in the life of a sound recordist. He told me that he relies heavily on fixers, meaning local people who know the area and can help him avoid the issues that he would otherwise not know about when visiting a country that he's not particularly familiar with. I want this this opinion of a local who has grown up somewhere. You know, you can't replicate that. You, no matter how many books you read about a place or how much you talk to, to people, it's there's no substitute for that. So as soon as I get into a place... If I can find a good fixer, you know, I talk to them, I explain to them my background, I explain to them what I'm trying to achieve. And I can see it on their face, you know, it's very gently dawning on them that, well, this guy is serious. You know, he really wants to understand how I feel having grown up here. So I get these interesting opinions and and experiences and, and stories from people who would never tell them otherwise. You know, they think people don't care. A lot of the photographers who go to a place, take a photo, move on. I think sound makes us think about things in, in a different way. You know, you can't really hear something in, during a frame, you know, like what is it, like one forty-four thousand of a second. You know, you, you need way more than that to understand what's happening. So listening in a place takes hours, days, sometimes weeks. And if I have someone to guide me through that, to tell me about their experience, about their life in that environment, that is very helpful. It's incredibly helpful. And it opens my ears as well to things that I would ignore otherwise. But a day in the life is never the same. For example, in uh, in the Sahara, when I was, I was there a few weeks ago, I was waking up at 4 a.m. to record myself run up and down the sand dune because around 5, you'd get the flies coming out. There were so many flies. There had been unseasonal rains recently. So there was a lot of greenery. There was a lot of, uh, there was an explosion in gazelles and things like that and cattle and they were pooping everywhere. And since there's not a lot of bacteria, not a lot of happening, they just dry. And this, that obviously, you know, creates an explosion in insects and flies mostly. So whenever I try to point a microphone at my feet and just run around for a bit and record myself, I would get a little swarm of flies as well. So everything I was recording, it was like, bzz, you know, there was a buzzing in the background, which sounds amusing on the surface. But the problem is I had to record a lot of these, you know, walking gently, you know, walking more deliberately, running up a sand dune. And when you try to do that at 35 degrees temperature in, in very scorching heat, it, it gets old very fast. So I didn't want to do it too many times, you know, just in case the, there were too many flies. So I had to wake up at 4 a.m., you know, to go out in the dark. I also had to be careful. There were snakes and scorpions and things around. So, yeah, that was my, the start of my day. Then I would come back to camp. I would have breakfast. Then I would go collect the microphones that I had set up overnight uh, in different places, you know, like at the top of a mountain or maybe in a cave or somewhere. And then we would pack up and we would drive maybe for three or four hours, stop for lunch. Before we started eating, I would set up some microphones again because that's when the wind picked up. So I like to get some of that sandy wind, sand spray. So I walk again for maybe half an hour, maybe an hour to, to set up more rigs for while we were lunching and then resting. Then we, I collect those, you know, drive for three or four more hours, find a, a campsite for the night and then set up more rigs for the next day. It was exhausting, 
but very very cool you know I, I love doing this stuff for me this is this is is amazing and it's a very good antidote to sitting here at my desk for 10 hours a day in other situations you know i drive around and find a place and then i spend a, a week there maybe a month there it depends on what i'm focusing on what i'm trying to record and where i am i need to listen i think listening is a very underrated skill for for sound recorders and sound designers sometimes i don't even record much for the for the first two or three days i just walk around sit down somewhere, listen for a few hours, move on, ask people about things and ask them, is this the same in the morning? You know, do you hear different things in the morning? Sometimes there are weird temperature inversions and you get these very distant sounds that are reflected back by the clouds or by the, the humidity in the atmosphere. So you, you hear traffic somewhere where, you know, wouldn't normally hear it. So all these things, all this research, all these recce's, they do help picking the best uh, spots for, for recording. So about that, that's about the, the kind of stuff I do on expedition. It's never the same, as I said, but there's kind of there's patterns to it, I guess. Looking at George's website or his SoundCloud page or his YouTube channel, it's pretty clear that this is a guy who has no problem spending time in places that are remote and wild. I was curious how he selects his destinations. It's a mix of several factors. Sometimes I get requests from clients. Sometimes I get contracted to go record something. Sometimes I really like the sound of a place. I read a lot of books about travel and about harsh environments and survival and, and things like that. So I always add those to, to my list. I've always also thought about things that are distant, that, that we can lose very soon. When I went to Borneo, it was you know well known that Borneo has been has had a lot of deforestation. So I wanted to get some of that before it disappears completely. Obviously, I'm hoping it's not it's not the, the case. And there's some good news coming from that part of the world, you know, with regards to the governments realizing how bad it can get without forest coverage, you know, and, and turning everything into plantations. Sometimes I just want to go somewhere. I really want to go to the desert. I love being out in the desert. So I've been planning these trips to Mauritania, to Algeria, to Chad. So when this uh, this person reached out to me a few months ago, they said they needed recordings from a sandy desert where you can find mountains as well. So I told him, look, I've already researched two trips, Mauritania and Algeria. You know, these are perfect for what you need. I just need to go. You know, just, you, we just need to agree on something, and, I, and I'm going to go. That was the perfect uh, synchronicity because I was already planning to go there. I don't like to think of myself as a very commercial sound recordist or sound designer, but sometimes it makes sense to record more of something because it allows me to go on more expeditions later. You know, we all have those special places that we visit that change us forever. I asked George if he had one of those. There are several of those, I can say. I mean, on every trip, ideally, that would happen. You know, when, when I go to, to places that not many people go, there's always something to discover. It always sounds different from what I'm expecting it to sound. I think the most, the best example of this could be the rainforest in Gabon and, and the, the Congo Basin rainforest. When I was there, I had trouble, you know, I, I planned that trip for probably a year before I went there. I couldn't find any resources. You know, there was maybe, there's a book about Gabon and the Congo, which is very thin. It's, it's very light on resources. You know, everything was out of date by the time I, I got there, you know, it, didn't, it wasn't really uh, valid anymore. But the, the good thing about that is there's no hordes of people, you know, tourists going there, you know, there's not any tourism infrastructure. So everything had to be tailor-made for us. You know, we had to find people to, to help us everywhere. And there was no one else. We, we were in places. We, there were no people for tens of miles around us. And I made some recordings there that I don't think anyone had ever made before. You know, there, no one 
with cameras had ever been to some of these places. So, you know, let alone microphones. So there's this place called Langue Bai. It's a, it's a giant clearing in the rainforest on the border between Gabon and the Republic of the Congo. And that's where elephants come to frolic in the mud. And there's gorillas coming there as well. There's, you know, all these wildlife that basically live without ever seeing humans because you know, there's a huge national park there. There's not, not many, very many people living in Gabon. So wildlife doesn't really care about humans over there. You feel very insignificant. It's not like in a city where, you know, you have to look for animals or wildlife. or That's where everything is just nature and wildlife. So I went there and I set up a microphone rig at the edge of this giant clearing. You know, I left it there for 36 hours or so. And I got a thunderstorm approaching and there were elephants screaming and trumpeting in the center of this clearing in the rainforest. And you got all these beautiful reflections. very primeval you think about it as something where humans haven't really developed just yet you know maybe humans are, are tiny and they're they're a very small part of the the whole thing but they're they've not taken over yet so it feels like going back in time not just going somewhere and reaching that it took us flying to to gabon and then driving for two days and then taking a midnight train for for like six hours and then driving again and then walking for a whole day through the rainforest it was tough to get there it was proper remote but that, yeah, that was a very humbling experience to be there to witness that. The last question I asked was about the skills required to do what George Vlad does for a living. Now, obviously, he has a degree in sound design and has had the opportunity to spend countless hours in places that offer up remarkable things to record. But there's more to it than that. There are many things you would not expect to, to see on this list. I'm working on a, on a field recording course, which is probably going to take maybe two or three more years to, to put together. I recorded a few videos on it, but this is one of the things that I'm, I'm still thinking about. You know, what are the skills you need beyond, you know, just recording? You know, sound recording is, is fairly easy if you think about it in the studio. You know, you just go to school, learn sound recording, and then you, can, you, you know more or less what microphone pattern you need, you know, how, how to point it at something, whatever you need to record, you know, how to operate the recorder. But as soon as you take that out of the studio, you know, and then you're, you're faced with nature and wildlife and diseases and people are trying to get your money because your visa expired uh, two hours earlier than it should have, or, you know, all these random things. I think you need patience. I think this is a, is a symptom of, of where the Western world is at the moment. Everyone wants these solutions that, you know, maybe you buy something and it makes your, your craft or your job 10 times as more, more exciting or, or easier or there's nothing like that in the sound recording world. You know, when you come back and something doesn't sound right, you know, no one's going to listen to it and tell you, oh, this is your problem because it's very difficult to diagnose it. You know, you have to understand how it works before you go do it. So I think patience and the ability to to diagnose things like that. If, if you're going out in the field and rec you're recording something and it doesn't sound quite right, but you don't know where it is, you have to be self-sufficient there. You have to find out what the problem is. 
listening as well, as I mentioned earlier, not enough people listen enough. When they, they go somewhere, they're very excited about pressing record and capturing everything. But before you do that, there's there's many decisions that you're making, aware or not aware, you know, you have to be deliberate about it. But if you're not making those decisions in a deliberate way, you're basically ignoring them. So you're just doing some, you're placing something somewhere. That's going to be the point uh, where it's recorded. But are you thinking about the reflections? Are you thinking about what kind of animals are passing by there? You know, are you thinking, what are you trying to get? Some people don't even think about what they're trying to get first. They just cap capture everything and then think about it later. And they realize they missed something or they needed something completely different. Listening, you know, when you think about it in, in a, the, the philosophical sense, people don't listen to each other anymore as much. You know, people are so focused on their own voice, on, on the, what they're trying to say that they're ignoring other people's voices. So it, it's, it's a very complex thing that, as I said, it comes with living fast-paced life in a fast-paced world. So you have to slow down a bit and listen. Surprisingly, when you have to go somewhere and get away from people, you have to be good at working with people. Because you know, from the moment you land in, in a country like Algeria, for example, I had, I had to wait for three hours for my passport to be stamped. And then I only got a visa for five days. I had to be there for 11 days. It's very easy to get angry. I feel people in the West feel a bit more entitled about things. To some extent, it's normal. You know, when you pay for a service, you expect it to, be, to have it, right? So if you pay for the border force here in the UK, you expect things to work when you fly back into the UK, right? That's what your money is paying for. But if, when you fly to a country like Algeria, for example, you know there's different rules, different norms, different culture over there. So if you get your visa for five days, you have to walk this uh, this fine line between being too assertive and not being assertive enough. So you know the way to deal with that for me was I asked politely, and they said, "Look, you know this is what we can give you. You know just move on, whatever. You know we have other people behind you waiting." So I had to move on. I know I had to talk to my fixers, and they said, "Okay, yeah, you need to go back to this different airport." and try to get an extension on your visa that takes 15 days you know i only have five days in my visa how's that going to work let's try and fix it so you know gently we made a plan you know i had to go back three times i wasted a bunch of uh, time on my expedition just to get that sorted but it, you know, it worked in the end a lot of these things are, are interpersonal relationships where you learn to give and take and to to dance this dance you know and to be polite while also being assertive and to not become angry and to not lose your patience you learn by doing it. You know, sometimes someone is really intent on getting a bribe from you. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to pay them. Otherwise, they're going to have a conflict. You know, you're going to when you're in the middle of the, the rainforest in Gabon and uh, someone, you know, the policeman is looking at your car saying, look, you have something over here that's not working. You know, you have to pay me. Otherwise, you're not going to pass. What are you going to do? Can't really go to the garage and get that car fixed because there's no garage for 100 miles. I wrapped our interview by asking George if he had any final thoughts for the audience. He wanted to talk about the power of story and why media, whether video, photograph, the written word, or in this case, sound, must be delivered from a storyteller's perspective. You know, I was, I was listening to your podcast and I was looking at your website earlier, and I think you do that in a very good way as well. Everything, everything you do and you, you post comes with a story of its own. If we go and think about humans, humans who have developed over hundreds of thousands of years, storytelling is the original film and video game and entertainment and media, you know, that's where what everyone can relate to. Not everyone likes video games or maybe people get bored with films or series or reading books. But when you tell a good story, people are, are enraptured, right? And that's a skill that everyone can, can work on and everyone should work on to be able to 
you know, convince people of things. When we think about sound recording, you know, we can't deliver an experience in 10 seconds. And this leads me to the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about. It's how do we get to people with our recordings? This is a question that almost no one ever asks. For them, it's all about the process of recording and then putting it up on, a, on SoundCloud or on YouTube or in a library or somewhere, or playing it back in an installation. But how do you reach people? You know, it's not enough to put a recording out anymore. That used to be the case maybe in the 80s where there were three sound recorders in, in the whole of Hollywood or something like that. Nowadays, everyone can record something with their phone and they can put it up or, you know, they can add a photo to a sound recording and maybe put it on YouTube. You have to think about marketing. Marketing is coming up with a compelling story to tell someone so that you, you grip them and then they will want to buy things from you. They'll want to access your sound recordings. They want to listen. They want to be involved. It's about packaging it. You know, when you think about sound on its own, it's very interesting to maybe a handful of people. But when you put something on social media, people see first and then listen. Sometimes they don't even listen, you know, to, to, to many things. If, they, if you have a good photograph of something, people are going to be more interested. You, you can hook them with a good photo and then say, look, this is a photo of this landscape I recorded in. Come to my website or join me on YouTube and see, but then listen as well. Instead of just posting a link somewhere without any context, that's never going to attract anyone. And the way the social media works is that it's compounded. You know, if people don't click on your link for, what, five, ten minutes, it, it's not shown to anyone anymore. So we have to be clever about this. I want to tell people that to reach people with their recordings, they need to be smart about it. They need to put a story out. They need to talk about it. They need to offer information. If you're talking in a field recording Facebook group, you have to talk about equipment because that's what people are interested in, but also about your mindset and your perspective. If you're in a conservation group, you know, you have to talk about the species you're trying to record or preserve or, or help. You know, if you're in a ethnomusicology group, you know, you have to talk about something that's uh, that's good, you know, good context for that uh, for that group of people. I feel like these skills, I I've never had them, you know, I've, I've had to build them from from scratch. But a lot of people just ignore them. They don't want to. It feels like it's degrading their craft. They feel like pure field recording should be enough for everyone to, to be interested in. And that's not the case. My friend, sound designer and field recordist George Vlad from his home in London. You can learn more about George and his work by visiting his website, www.mindful-audio.com. He also has a superb YouTube site, which you can find by searching for either George Vlad that's V-L-A-D, or Mindful Audio. Thank you, George. Normally, I end these episodes with my usual outro, but George was kind enough to send me quite a few clips from his work all over the world, so I think I'm going to end with one of them. Here is George's Borneo Rainforest Soundscape at Dusk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>